0: Now, last week, uh, when we were looking at the woman caught in adultery, I had promised you guys that this week we would be talking about what it means to um, discern right from wrong and confront sin in culture and in people as we're called to do and yet not judge lest we be judged, as Jesus said. And how do we tread that fine line? And what are the intricacies of that? And we took a poll last week and we said, who's doing good at this? And nobody raised their hand. Two people from first service raised their hand, but first service is full of it. You guys are straight up... (laughs) Nobody raised their hand. None of us get that issue, so we need to talk about it. We will talk about it. When I promised to talk about it this week, last week, I forgot a few things. I forgot it was Palm Sunday, and I forgot that the women were going to be at the women's retreat, and they need to hear that don't judge message the most. So (laughs) I'm just kidding. We'll wait until they're back, and and we'll pick that up after Easter. I promise that we'll do that. You guys have been having great discussions in your home groups about that. If you're anything like me, you've been repenting a bunch this week as the Lord is teaching you about that. Here's why today is very special in addition to being Palm Sunday. One of the things that we're called and blessed to do as a church is plant other churches, birth other churches, right? You guys know that. That's a, a huge way in which we spend ourselves for the kingdom of God. Our first baby was Reality Los Angeles, which is doing incredible. And then Reality Stockton was our next kid. And then Reality Los Angeles had a kid in London. So that's our grandbaby church, Reality London. And then we just launched uh, two and a half months ago, we just launched Reality San Francisco. It's already one of the biggest churches in the city of San Francisco, a couple months into it. They're doing incredible. And uh, so we've got a bunch of churches out there and our new church planter is in our midst. He and his family have been with us since September. They did the whole gig. They uh, quit their job on staff at a church and said goodbye to everyone and moved up here, and he got a normal job out in the world, and since September, they've been here for seven months, he and his wife and their two beautiful daughters, and they're going through the ministry detox period, I've told you guys about that before, it's gnarly for a church planner, for someone full-time ministry, they have to go through that detox, it's an emotionally beautiful, crazy time, and so he's going through that, he's coming on staff full-time in September for about a year, and then we'll send him out to plant a church, where is the church going to be? not going to tell you yet. But I'll give you some clues. It's not going to be international. It's going to be in America. And of all of our American church plants, it'll be the furthest away from home base. So that narrows it down to about 40,000 cities. So go look at a map and choose one of those, and we'll be sending them to a city uh, in the next year and a half or so. So When these families come to plant churches with us, they become our own. They become our children. They become deeply loved by us. We will invest in them with everything that we have. They will invest in us as a church. And we're going to have a beautiful, beautiful relationship with this pastor and his family. And when we send them out, he'll go out as one of us. And uh, it's a cool thing. So I want you to welcome and love and encourage Pastor Al Abdullah.
1: Good morning, how are you guys doing? Um, it has been crazy. I'm waiting for the beautiful part. No, I'm just kidding. It's been, what's been beautiful, uh, the detox part that, that uh, you heard Dave Lomas talk about and Britt talk about, it is uh, something else for sure. Uh, matter of fact, on my way home a couple days ago, I texted Britt and just said uh, how much uh, I blamed him for everything that we've gone through uh, as I was stuck in traffic on the 101 after a crazy day at work. Um, But with all that said, uh, the relationships that we've made with the staff and with the body, several people through home group and and things like that, has been absolutely beautiful. We love the staff. We love uh, the body and who we've met and uh, feel absolutely loved and feel family. So uh, it's great to be with you today. Uh, What I really want to highlight is from Matthew chapter 21. So if you turn with me to Matthew 21, we'll start there. The title for today's message uh, is The Coming King. As we look at this Palm Sunday passage, we'll start reading in verse 1, Matthew 21. <clears throat> it said, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant and they said to him, do you not hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes. Have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies? You have prepared praise and leaving them. He went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Lord, we ask your blessing on this time that we have together, Lord. We certainly don't want to come and just uh, allow these words to be just words on a page and then they don't affect our hearts. We want the theology of this passage to affect our practice, Lord. We want you to change us. We want to be transformed. We want hope and we want uh, your Holy Spirit to uh, renew our minds. I, I pray that you would do that right now. We pray, Lord, as you're in our midst here. You are in our midst. You, your word says that you walk amongst us. You're the coming king. We pray, Jesus, that you would do a work now in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the, uh, the thrust of the message and, and the, really the big idea is found in verse 5. We'll pick it up there when it says again that the message that the prophet Zechariah had, had prophesied hundreds of years prior was fulfilled when it said, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. From that passage, really, this is the big idea. Your king is coming to you. Jesus is king. That's the main idea of what we want to look at today. The question that I want to ask you is, so What? So Jesus is the king. We understand this intellectually, some of us who have been through many Palm Sunday messages or who have read this passage. But how does it affect me tomorrow, today when I go home, Monday through Saturday? What difference does this make in my life? A lot of us could believe, yeah, Jesus is the king. Big deal. The prophet, or the great philosopher Dwight Schrute from the show The Office recently said, sales is king, therefore I am king of kings. Oh, what's that? You say Jesus is king of kings? That shows you what I think of myself, Dwight Schrute. And I'll say that for myself, having thought about this passage for some time now, I've had a few weeks even to think about Jesus as king, doesn't change the fact that days at work get crazy, family life gets crazy, if you have children, you know being a parent is crazy, Uh, I have friends who are facing a terrible uh, marital relationship right now, or illness, or loss, life is crazy, so how does Jesus as king, how does it affect my life, how am I to respond? And that's really the question. If Jesus is king, how should we then respond? How do these people respond when he comes into the city? It's really like a party. When he comes in, the disciples who are there, who see him, who are witnessing this event, they're celebrating, they're shouting words like Hosanna, which is, some say, like Augustine says, that's really the, where we get the word hooray. It's really a state of emotion rather than some statement of truth. Hooray, this is the king we've waited for. It's a party, a celebration. So the main idea is if Jesus is king, we should celebrate him. But some of you say, why why should I celebrate Jesus? Why should I celebrate the fact that he's king? You don't understand what I'm facing. You don't know what I'm going through. The trials that I'm in, addictions that I've faced, issues that I can't, Help in my own life, loss, illness, pain, financial difficulty. How do I celebrate Jesus as King in the midst of all of this? And really, I think that the passage lays it out for us. We'll answer it in two ways. First, why we should celebrate Jesus as King, and then how, how we do it. First, we celebrate Jesus as King for who he is, he's the actual King. It says in, starting at verse one, when he drew near to the Jerusalem, he came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent his disciples, saying to them, go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you should say that the Lord has need of them. He'll let it go. And it says this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. I just want to give a side note before we look at Jesus as the actual king, the true king. What interests me here is that I see that as Jesus is entering into Jerusalem to declare himself as king of the world, he's made it pretty discreet prior to this, but now he's unveiling his authority and his kingly kingship. And as he does it, all the whole scenario is completely under his control. It says, as it was prophesied hundreds of years prior, He told his disciples, this is what I want you to do. When you get there, the guy's going to let you have his donkey. All you tell him is the teacher has need of it. And it says they went and did as Jesus directed them. And it was just as he said. It encourages me to realize that Jesus is completely in control. Even though the events of my life sometimes or the things in my life seem so mundane. My job or day to day. And what I find is that Jesus is completely sovereign in this situation. That's the theological word. He is sovereign. He's in control. Even in control of these men doing things that just seem to be small-time stuff. They're going to get a donkey for Jesus. Going to get a jackass. And a lot of ways, these last six months, I feel like I have the jackass job. I feel like, you know, I'm literally uh, doing... things that I I didn't see myself doing years ago and never planned, but Jesus has been faithful and I see that he's the king even in my situation, even in my small situations that seem frustrating. He's still king. But as the actual king, the people worship him. They're all gathered there. It's the Sunday prior to his death on the cross. It's known as Passion Week. And it begins Sunday as he enters into Jerusalem what we find about Jesus as king is that there's this huge frenzy. People are shouting and cheering and they begin to throw their coats down on the ground and he, he is, uh, and on the donkey and he gets onto the donkey and he's riding, again, symbolic of him as king. They're throwing palm branches and waving palm branches, symbolic of the freedom that God had brought to them in the Maccabean Revolt of about 100 years plus or so before that. And so they're seeing Jesus as the Davidic king, the king who was prophesied of in Zechariah 9, 9, who would enter into Jerusalem on a donkey as king, as prophesied in Psalm 118 when they say, Hosanna, save now, blessed is the king who comes. And they're saying, this is the Messiah, he's the chosen king, and they're celebrating they're celebrating Jesus as king, as the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies. Now, there are those who would say that isn't Jesus, the thought of Jesus as king, isn't that a recycled thought? Hasn't that been recycled years, hundreds of years, and then Jesus came on the scene later? I think about guys like King Arthur, who on his tomb it says, Here lies King Arthur, the once and future king, Rex Quondam, Rex Futura. And in fact, Jesus is the king, Jesus as king is the oldest story of all of them. It was predicted as far back as creation in Genesis chapter 3, when the last spoken word that man received from God face to face is that God would prepare and send a new king who would save them from their own rebellion against God. In the garden, when man chose to be his own king, our for our father adam chooses to rebel against god i think i can do it better and as a result sin enters the world the prophecy that's given in genesis chapter 3 15 and 16 is that god would send a new king who would con- who would conquer the great serpent the great dragon who brought in temptation and brought in sin and that the hope that one day this king would come and he would fight with the serpent. And he would fight to the death, but this king would win. And that this king would take on the forces of evil. And that his heel would be bruised, signifying the cross that Jesus would be put to death on. And forever his wounds would show, it all, in, even throughout heaven. But that this king would, would uh, come and defeat this dragon. And that's the case that all legends are a product of. And what we're tempted to do is say, that's ancient times, this is modern era, I don't need a king, and certainly I don't worship a king. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. Where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or famous stars instead, even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. If you deny it food, it will gobble poison. And just like the prodigal son who is denied food as he treats his father, a picture of God and how we have treated God, all of us, as the prodigal who rebels against God as king or rebels against his father and treats his father instead as a means to an end to get something from him and he's left without food, he will settle for anything that will come in front of him. In this case, he'll settle for pig's food. It's the same way with you and I. That just like the prodigal son, we, settle for, we, we, will, we will hunger for something. Spiritual nature must be served. Tim Keller asked the question, what is there about the human psyche that needs something to serve? Why this hunger for kings? The need to crown someone or something, psychologically or sociologically. What's the answer? And this is beautiful. He says, it's a memory trace in the collective unconscious of the human race of a perfect king, of an ultimate king, a king whose glorious splendor is undimmed before the breaking of the world, whose strength and beauty and wisdom is like the sun shining in its full strength. We remember that king. And what's the gospel? The gospel is news of a king. The gospel is news, not instruction. Oftentimes we take the gospel uh, to be based on our performance, whether we know it or not. We really relate to God on the basis of how well I'm doing, how well I'm performing, and don't feel that we're very close to God if we're not doing as well as we should. But the gospel is not about me. The gospel is about Jesus, the news of a king. Even the word gospel, Evangelion, is related to the message of Jesus as king. And it's a term that's distinguished the Christian message from all other religions. The reason being is because an evangel in biblical days was somebody who would walk the streets announcing a message or news of something that would change the status of the hearer, that affected their life and the way that they lived. But it not only changed their status, it required a response. So in other words, an evangel would walk through the town and cry out that "There is a new king." Basically, he's a newsboy. Or, "We've won a victory." And this announcement would require a response from the listener. Either they would obey the king or reject the king. And but it's the same way with you and I. That's the message that the gospel brings, the news of what God has done to accomplish salvation through Jesus Christ in history, not advice about what we have to do to reach God. That's how the message of, uh, of Jesus differs from all other world faiths. The king will come, the gospel says. He's coming back. Blessed is the king who comes in verse 5. What the gospel says is that the reason that you have a need to crown someone or something, the reason that you and I search for kings or someone to worship, even though you won't admit it, is that spiritual nature, like your physical nature, will be served. And you have a king in your life, but this is the king that you seek. This is the ultimate king. This is the actual king. That's who he is. Elizabeth Elliot, in her book, Through Gates of Splendor, chronicles a missionary who, for years and years, served Jesus faithfully in foreign lands. And towards the end of the book, she's she's basically robbed and, and, and really uh, uh, severe misfortune comes to her life and somebody comes to her and says, but you've been serving God this whole time and you don't see any fruit to your ministry that you've been here all these years, you've sacrificed, and now how would this happen to you? What do you say about God? And I think it's a great question for you and I because unanswered prayer for us is a great way for us to understand who is my ultimate king. When we pray and we say, God, but I really wanted you to do it this way. I really wanted this particular thing. I wanted things to work out in in the way that I wanted them to work out. And I can't get over the fact that you're really blowing it by being God. And what does the missionary say when she's asked that question? Something beautiful. She says, God, if he were my accomplice, then he has disappointed me. But if he were my king, then he has freed me. He's freed me of everything. Everything I have belongs to him. If he were my accomplice, the one I'm working with for, and, and, and you know he, he obeys the way that I do it, then he disappointed me. But if he is my king, he's freed me. Jesus, who he is, he's the ultimate king. Secondly, we should celebrate Jesus Because he's the transformational king. That's what he does. Look at verse 12. It says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it into a den of thieves. Now why is it so Radical and extreme that Jesus, his first act as king, he rolls into the temple. And the people that were there for, for sure would have seen this and been absolutely shocked. And I can see that most of us aren't absolutely shocked. So we have to understand the nature of the temple so that you can be absolutely shocked. The nature of the temple is twofold. One, the purpose of the temple was so that man could have an experience with God, could meet with God, the transcendent God man could have a relationship with and meet with him because the temple was the place where the glory of God, the Shekinah, the presence of God dwelt. Of course, God is everywhere, omnipresent, but in a special way, for some reason, God chose to allow his glory to be present visually in the temple or the tabernacle as it was in the Old Testament. And the reason being is that man, as a result of rebelling against God, choosing to be king, is cast out of the garden. And there's a, a gap that's, that's made as a result of his rebellion, our rebellion, yours and mine. And as a result, there's no intimacy. There's no longer relationship with God. Well, the temple, God designed it and created the tabernacle for his people, for Israel, to come and meet with him, to experience him, to enjoy him, to know him. Secondly, the purpose of the temple wasn't only for experiencing God, but it was also for sacrifice. It was a place Of sacrifice, where you could come and have a a blood sacrifice that would remove the stain of your sin. The reason being is because the wages of sin, the Bible says, is what? Death. And in order for us to bridge the gap, to breach the gap that's been uh, caused as a result of our rebellion against God, there must be death to uh, make recompense. If you, any of you, have children, I have two daughters. Uh, one that just turned five yesterday and I can't believe uh, it's happening so fast but um, if she were to go off to college and I were to pay for that and the money that I gave and I paid for her to go to school, she went to off to a far land and just squandered it and spent it however she wished. And she completely used it, my, our, our, her parents and completely just trashed on everything that we had given her. And she came home and she just sat down chewing gum. Hey, what's going on, dad? You wouldn't say, wow, what a cranky dad. Can't you get over the fact that she, she did wrong? So what? And people look at God and say, what a cranky God you have. He has, you have to pay offering for sin? None of us would look at the, at the parent and say, just get over it. All of us would look and say, there has to be some type of sacrifice or some type of offering to show that there is genuine sorrow and repentance there so that the relationship can be bridged again. And that's what the sin offering was. God, wanting to make man right, allowed there to be a sacrificial system where man could bring a blood offering of a lamb or a goat. The Bible says God never delighted in the offering of lambs or goats, but it was a foreshadow that ultimately there had to be a blood payment. There had to be a sacrifice, and Jesus himself would come and pay that. Why? Because when man sins against God in the garden, what does he turn around and see When Adam and Eve are walking out of the garden, they're thrust out of the presence of God. They turn around and what do they see at the gate? A flaming sword waving back and forth, barring man from the presence of the glory and the beauty of God. And the only way back into the presence of God, back into complete relationship and fellowship and, and oneness, intimacy, is to go under the sword. Who can survive that though? None of us. And therefore, there has to be an offering. There has to be a sacrifice to break the sword so that we can enter back into the presence of God. And the the temple was the place of that sacrifice. Jesus comes into the temple, his first act of being king, and begins to overturn tables. Money's flying everywhere. Jesus is yelling, spit flying perhaps. His eyes are Flames of fire, and none of it is sinful. Why? Because of what he does. He's the actual king, but he's also the transformational king. He's the king who, what does it say in verse 5? The king who is coming to you. What does he come to do? To free you, to bring transformation. How does he do that? He does that first by freeing us from religion. When Jesus walks into the temple, what he sees is all kinds of busy activity. You can picture Tijuana. How many of you have been to TJ? Nobody wants to admit? Okay. Um, You can picture TJ. TJ. And when you walk into Tijuana, what do you have? Buying and selling, bartering, trading. Imagine you walking into the doors of church. The temple was far more of a place of, 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 of a, a holy stigma than your average church. It was the temple where God's glory dwelt and where sacrifices, blood was shed. But we'll say for a lower scale, imagine you walked into church next week and there is all kinds of, you take TJ and you put it in the halls of reality and all kinds of busyness, how easy would it be to worship? So hard. And Jesus walks in and what he sees is all kinds of religious activity and he comes to free them, to transform them as he comes to you, to free you and transform you and me showing that he's not after busyness He's after spiritual reality. He walks in and he calls it my house. Don't you see what you're doing? He sees money trading back and forth, all kinds of frantic activity. And he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer, a place where you connect with God. But you've made it a den of thieves. What Jesus is saying is, I want spiritual reality, I don't want ritual. I want you to really meet with me. I want you to know me. Do you have that? Let me put it another way. When you and I pray, this is searching as God's word comes in. It's searching for you and me. When you pray, do you say your prayers? Habitually, Or are you praying, interacting with the living God? When you pray, do you go through the motions or is there a connection? And that's what Jesus is saying. Do you really know God? Is there a connection? It's just like in marriage. As God has created the sexual uh, uh, union for husband and wife It's not so that there would just be some motion. Just like Britt said last week, you schedule it. Oh, it's Thursday. Guess what time it is? (laughs) It's that there's this intimacy and there's a connection and that there's a a, a reality in the relationship. And that's what Jesus is saying. He says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, a place where you meet me. But instead, you've made it a place where there's just busy activity. When you pray, when I pray, do the burdens come off? Or do you pray, when you pray, do do thoughts about God become big and affecting and and, uh, disturbing and exhilarating and comforting? Thoughts about his bigness, his glory, his beauty. What do you do with your worry? Do you anesthetize it in some way or with someone? Or do you take it to, to God, to Jesus, and He removes it in light of His great mercy and His sovereignty? What about with your anger? You just let it steam or blow up at loved ones, children, spouse, friends, coworkers? Or is it that we take our even our anger and our bitterness to God and in light of His grace, He begins to change the way that I even view other people? What about your guilt? How do you deal with that? Do you rationalize it? Do you try to explain it away and cast it on other people? Or in light of the grace of God, the anger fades and the guilt fades and the wisdom and worry fade. And that's what Jesus is saying to you and me, that your life is like this temple. And for some of us, it's unbelievably busy. But there's no prayer. There's no connection. There's no reality, spiritually. And Jesus Christ shows up at the temple because he says, the temple is about spiritual reality. It's not about believing the right things or being the right person, or a nice person, primarily. It's not about those things. The temple was about knowing God, encountering him. And Jesus says, I don't look at the externals and what you're doing. I want you. And he comes in and he completely cleans it out. He doesn't only free us from our religion in his transforming way as he comes to us, he also transforms us and frees us from our idols. That's the, really the big picture here. When he's cleaning the temple, Jesus is basically saying, I'm God, I've come, this is my house, and he completely starts rearranging the furniture. And really, if you're at home and somebody walks in the door and he just says, Excuse me, I gotta move this lamp real fast, and they completely, you know, rearrange the couch and the lamp, you'd freak out. Because the only one who's allowed to rearrange the furniture is the owner of the house. And Jesus comes into the temple and says, This is my house. I have the authority to rearrange your life how I please, because I'm the one who frees you from your idols, from pseudo kings. And here's the question. The real Jesus, when he comes in, does he really ask you for your advice on, well, maybe you should lie. Do you think he should lie here? Do you think that you should use your sexuality how you want to use it? Um, Do you think that you should abuse people? Do you think that you should just be uh, religious externally but not showing mercy and love? He doesn't do that. He comes as a king. He's got a bit of fire. He's got a bit of bite. He pushes That's how we know that the king comes in. Any other king who has no say in my life, who has no uh, 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 kind of authority, who doesn't challenge me or push me, that's an imaginary king. That's not Jesus. What kind of things does he begin to move? Does he arrange? I think a great example, a perfect example, was the money changers. Was there really anything wrong with the money changers? Was it wrong for people to sell animals so that people could take them for their sacrifice? I mean, it was needed, it was very necessary. You're on a long journey, you don't have an animal sacrifice, it wouldn't have survived the journey and by now it'd be super skinny. God, you know, why would I offer this thing? So it would be a good thing. So what was the problem with the money changers? the problem with the money changers as Jesus walks into the temple is that they had become too far deep into where God's glory should have been. They had been allowed a home to live in the place where Jesus was to have been the center, where it was to have been the place of of spiritual intimacy. And it's a good thing, notice, we oftentimes view sin as being the externals that we should not do. But a lot of times, whether it's uh, uh, a s- s- uh, sexual sin or, or uh, that a lot of things that are preached against, anger, bitterness, jealousy, those are merely the externals. Those are the low-hanging fruit. It always comes as a result of not Truly understanding what Jesus has done for me on the cross and knowing my justification in him. Ultimately, Jesus walks in and he removes the money changers because they had taken the place where God should have been. They were crowding him out, these other affections, other loves, the love for something else, the allowance of something to take the place that the glory of God should have been solely existing in. How do we know what those things are in our life? How do we know what has gone gone too deep into our life? We can ask a few questions. What is it that you can't live without? That you look at God and you say, with or without you, God, I got to have this. What is it that you look at that really, ultimately, day after day, irritates you, gets to you? What is it ultimately that makes me or you bitter, the people around me or God? Anything other than for his glory, it shows there are things that I've allowed to come too deep into his, the place where his glory is supposed to live. Jesus is the transformational king. And if he's in your life, he'll show that he's God and that he has authority by pushing those things out where they belong. He loves to do that. Why? Because he's the king of glory who comes in. How do you know that Jesus, how do you know that you've had your own personal Palm Sunday, that the king has ridden in? Uh, Beautiful experience. Uh, Last week, just on a regular random day, sitting there praying with my daughters before bed, and uh, I asked my daughter, knowing that uh, with this passage in mind and this text in mind, uh, you want to ask Jesus to come in and be your king? And she said, I thought I already did that. And I said, well, we can know that Jesus can be your king. He'll, he'll come in and be your, 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 your good shepherd and your strong king. Do you want, you want that? Yeah, and she prays to have Jesus come in and be king. Now, time will only tell what, what the fruit of that is. But how do you know that the king has come into your life? Some of you maybe who have been raised in church, been in church your whole life. How do you know that the king has really come in? It's that he begins to rearrange the furniture. He begins to point out things that are taking place of the glory of God in your life. And you say, okay, you're the king, come on in. Jesus is that transformational king, but it's not merely enough for me to know Jesus as the actual king, who he is, the true king, or to know him as the transformational king, what he does, because that leaves me with an understanding of his transcendence, his power, his glory, his otherness, but it doesn't do much for the connection that's there. I still kind of view him as kind of maybe not approachable. But the reason that Jesus is so much different from other kings is the way he comes in. Verse five again, behold, your king is coming to you. What's the next word? Out loud. Your king is coming to you, how? Humble. He's the paradoxical king. That's how he comes in. What do I mean by paradox? Paradox, self-conflicting. There's this self-conflicting nature in who Jesus is. The people were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna, he's come, here he is, come free us from our present circumstances, the rule of the Romans in this case. Jesus comes in and says, no, I'm not riding on a horse today, I'm going to ride in on a donkey, on a baby donkey. That wasn't the way that kings rode in typically. The way that you ride in as a king after victory, it was with a a huge procession behind you, and you're riding in on a horse, strong, victorious. Jesus comes in as actual king, transformational king. He rides into the, to the temple, overthrows the money changers as the powerful king, but he rides in on a little donkey because he's the paradoxical king. In Jesus is humility and strength. In Jesus is meekness and power. As the psalmist says, Twice I have heard you, O oh Lord. Or two things I know about you. Psalm 60 62. That you, O oh Lord, are loving and you, O oh Lord, are strong. In Jesus is the union of perfect strength and humility. Most of us, all of us, have some t- type of personality uh, bent. Some of us, we view ourselves, I'm a strong Christian. I'm a bold maybe caught kind a of powerful Christian. Really, I'm just a loud jerk. Some of us look and say, well, I'm just, be a little meek and kind of on the quiet side, but maybe it's more that I'm kind of cowardice. We really have a, a bent towards one or the other. And, you know, I, I can have the bent towards either one on any given day. It just depends on the 101. And really, I mean... Um, but the reality is that in Jesus is the perfect combination of both. And as Jesus rides in and comes into my life, he is the combination. He begins to live his life through me so that to my spouse, to my children, as a coworker, I can begin to respond in situations not based on my natural temperament, but based on the, the character of Jesus perfect strength, and yet perfect humility. Humble confidence. But what I really want to point out in the paradox of Jesus is something that Jonathan Edwards uh, preached on. Uh, he's got a message called The Excellencies of Christ out of Revelation 5, and then he talks about how conflicting the nature of Jesus is and in Revelation 5, when an angel tells John to behold, don't weep anymore, look at the lion of the tribe of Judah, he turns around and what does he see? A lamb who had been slain, approachable, gentle, humble. We see this all throughout Jesus' character in the Gospels, where he, 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 he calls the religious leaders hypocrites, where he calls Peter Uh, He says, get behind me, Satan, where he overthrows tables and overturns people who are making money. In America, you overturn somebody's financial, you know, way of making money. People aren't just going to stand there and watch, but yet they stand and watch Jesus. But yet when the woman who's caught in adultery comes to him, as we saw last week, what does he say to her? I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. I'm transforming you. What does he say to the woman who comes and touches the hem of his garment who cannot stop her own problem, a flow of blood of 12 years, and she sneaks a touch on his robe, and he turns around, knowing that power's gone out, he turns around and he says, don't be afraid. Daughter, you're healed. He calls people sons and daughters, little children, my little flock. The perfect combination of strength and humility is in Jesus. Jesus. And yet also Jesus, as he goes into the temple, it's also this, con- it's this this conflict of the temple represents who he is. It's a fulfillment of what he would do. The first time that we see Jesus as a boy going into the temple, he's 12 years old, and he goes in there with his parents, and I have to think that as he walks in and as he looks at all of the arrangements of the temple and the way that people worship, he notices as God his father speaks to him and says, Son, do you notice the sacrifice over there? The lamb that is having its neck slit and its blood spilling and they're sprinkling on the altar so that man could be forgiven of sin? That's you. That's what you will do. And do you see the high priest that enters in one time a year into the glory of God to pray for the people, to intercede on their behalf, to minister to them, to be a mouthpiece for God, and to speak for man to God? That's you. You'll be the perfect high priest. And do you see the prophets proclaiming the message of God? That's you. You will be the one who will be proclaiming, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. And do you see the utensils that are in the, the, the temple used for the offering and sacrifice? The wash basin, which was a picture of man could come to the water basin and be cleansed and be clean. That's a picture of you. Jesus is the one who's the fulfillment of the temple. He's the perfect temple, as he says in John 2, destroy this temple, and in three days, two days, three days, I'll raise it up again. Jesus comes to you and me. He is the one who is the fulfillment of the temple. And yet, in this paradox, it shows me the way that I can humbly serve others. The humility of Jesus, my acceptance before him, helps me to Love people not seeking their acceptance. Look at this quote. It says, the gospel turns everything upside down It defines success in terms of giving, not taking, self-sacrifice, not self-protection, going to the back, not getting to the front. It shows that we win by losing, we triumph through defeat, we achieve power through service, and we become rich by giving ourselves away. In fact, gospel-centered living means we follow Jesus in laying down our lives for others, serving instead of being served, seeking last place, not first. And gospel-centered people are those who love giving up their place for others, not guarding their place from others because their value and worth is found in Jesus. As Jesus comes in, he transforms me and you. Lastly, we celebrate Jesus because he is the confrontational king. There's a message that he brings in all of this that he's king It says in verse five that he's coming to you. That implies confrontation. That implies decision. And whether you've been in church your whole life or this is your first time ever, here's what the dilemma is. Jesus as king demands that either you crown him or you kill him. There's no middle ground. He will not simply be admired or liked. He's far too powerful, far too wonderful for that. He says, crown me or kill me, but I will not be merely admired or liked. As he looks at the, at the church, he says to some, you're neither hot nor cold, you're lukewarm. And because of that, I spit you from my mouth. He says that to those who are existing and dwelling in church, playing a church game, Coming with busyness, but there's no spiritual reality. Crown me in your life as king. Allow me to come in and remove those things that are taking the place of my glory, and I will live my life through you. I will love people through you. I will show you my grace. It's not about your failures, it's about my victory, he says. Now, here's the question and we'll close with this. How do we celebrate this? How do we celebrate Jesus as king? Here's the main point. We celebrate Jesus as king by making him the central king. When Jesus comes into the temple and kicks out the money changers, he's essentially removing all All the ways that man could get to God based on their own efforts. They're bringing their own sacrifice. What are you doing? You're removing every part of my own self-righteousness. That's what he does because you have none. The blood of bulls and goats could never remove sin. It could never take away the shame. Jesus says, I'm getting rid of those things. Those are obsolete it's all a picture of me. And what he does is he kicks them out. He kicks out the idol. He kicks out the religion. He, ki- he kicks everything out that's, remo- that's taken from the glory of God. And what does he do? He comes and he stands in the center. And for a full week nearly, he just teaches the people. I'm the fulfillment. I'm the sacrifice. It says he in Luke chapter 19 of the same account that he preached the gospel and he taught them. We are saved by the gospel, but we also grow through the gospel. We grow in our relationship with Jesus by continually coming back to He's the sacrifice, He's the fulfillment, He's the hero, He's the king. I'm the one who continually fails, He's the one who continually fulfills it. So, how do we celebrate? We celebrate by making Jesus the central king. But how do we do that? Two ways. Look at verse 14, as the money's flying and elbows are flying and, you know, Jesus is yelling, it says in verse 14, and the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. Just out of nowhere, chaos, commotion, Jesus is yelling, boom. But the blind and the lame, the weak and the broken come to him and they feel completely safe with him. And they know the only way I can get better is by you. The only way I can be saved is by you. We come to Jesus, we make him the central king through humble repentance. Martin Luther said, All of life is repentance. That's what he posted on the door of the 95 Theses. All of life is me coming to Jesus, as, as he said, simultaneously sinful yet accepted. It was a Latin phrase that he would use over and again. Simul justus et peccator. I am simultaneously sinful, yet I'm accepted. All of life is repentance. I'm simultaneously sinful. Jesus, I need you, yet thank you that you've accepted me. Isn't that beautiful? Not just through humble repentance, but lastly, we come to Jesus through complete Dependence. I love the thought of the children coming to Jesus. Verse 15, it says that the chief priests and scribes saw the wonderful things he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David. Isn't that an awesome thought? The kids are yelling out, hey, Jesus, Hosanna. Little kids, I was sitting right there last week when my daughter walked in with her class and started worshiping. Man, I had to fight off the emotion. I didn't didn't win, I just started crying because watching my daughter in the place of the, the glory of God, experiencing that, and the thought of her with other kids, Hosanna to the son of David. Jesus says, Jesus becomes indignant himself at, at the religious leaders because they're, they're just trying to keep the rules. They're indignant. They said, don't you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, haven't you ever read out of the mouth of babies and nursing infants you have perfected or prepared praise? For some reason, God loves to hear the cry and the worship of children. And that's why Jesus said, To be great in my kingdom, you got to come as one of these. You got to come as a humble child. Why? As a nursing baby. What is a nursing baby? completely dependent on his or her mom for food, for strength, for renewal, as are you and me. You come today, you make Jesus central king by humble repentance, Jesus. I confess that there are others who have allowed to compete for your glory that I've let too far in, good things even. We can turn good things. Blessings can become trials in my life. I begin to hold on to them too tight where now it's, if you take this, I can't survive. And I come and I give them back to Jesus and I say, I want your glory to be the center so that I don't use people or, 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 or uh, try to control people. And then, secondly, we come to Jesus not only in humble repentance, but in complete dependence as a child, coming for healing, coming for strength. The young men even will faint, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They'll walk and not grow weary, they'll run and not grow faint. I am simultaneously sinful, yet accepted. Lord, We thank you that you are the king who comes to us. You come to us. It's a personal thing. We're completely shocked that you would even want us. But it's reflective of your humility, your glory, and your love. And this morning, Lord, we want your glory to dwell in the center of our hearts we want you to be the one who is living in the holy of holies not other things or even people and we don't want to be busy about with religious activity without there being spiritual reality and I would invite you this morning if Jesus as king has been pointing out furniture moving things around he's in this house He's wanting to be the king of your house that you this morning as we take communion a symbol of his sacrifice that you would come in humbled, humble repentance. Jesus, here's the things that I've thought I can't live without. I give them back to you. I want you to be king and you come in complete dependence on him. Celebrating his offering, his perfect sacrifice so that you who are sinful, would yet also be accepted. That's who you are. In Jesus' name.